On this episode, we've got Christophe Barrier-Vajou, who is the star of the movie Dream Racer. We've got Shirley and Brian Ricks with an update on their adventure. They're in Kazakhstan right now. And we're going to speak with Susan and Grant Johnson, who are this week's Moto Moguls. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. This is Nick Sanders. I'm Jason Spafford. And I'm Lisa Morris. My name is Austin Vince. This is Rob B. I'm Rachel. This is Ed March. This is Glenn Hickstead. This is Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. This is Dave Barr. This is Alan Carl. This is Tiffany Coates. Hello, here is Herbert Schwartz. I'm Brett Tax. This is Zoe Cano. This is Nathan Millward. My name is Graham Hoskins. This is Joe Russ. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. It's Simon Pavey here. Hi, this is Grant Johnson. This is Robert Wicks. This is Elisa Workler. <laughs> this is Ted Simon. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home to the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, the Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a reliable and compact tire inflation method. And the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It can inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and a five-year warranty at CyclePump.com. That's www.CyclePump.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. I'm a traveller, motorcyclist and author, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. The Good Adventure Company is a motorcycle outfitter that donates its profits to sustainable charities. They specialize in soft luggage and only sell products they've tested and believe in. And now they're offering guided motorcycle tours. Visit them at www.good-adv.com. That's www.good-adv.com. We all have dreams, but many remain just that, dreams. Victims of inertia, of the complacency of a scheduled tomorrow that never comes. What does it mean to step out and seize one from the ether, to hold it, to stare it in the face and dare to live it? first time I meet Christoph, we're both helping a mutual friend move house and we're lugging furniture around together and he tells me he's planning to take part in the Dakar rally. And at first I think it's a joke. I mean, here's this guy, he's a business consultant, he doesn't look particularly fit and he's telling me he wants to take part in the world's most dangerous motor race. But he's pretty convincing and pretty soon I start to think, Wow, this could be the movie I've been waiting to make. Best known as the Paris Dakar Rally, the Dakar was founded 30 years ago. Up until 2008, the race took place predominantly in Africa, starting in Paris, Lisbon or Madrid and ending in Dakar, Senegal. But in 2008, terrorist threats in Mauritania led to the race being cancelled and then moved to Argentina and Chile in 2009. It's truly an Everest of motorsports, inspiring adventurers from across the globe. But undertaking such an adventure can mean paying the ultimate price. In the Dakar's 30-year history, there have been 48 deaths. This race was always going to be on Christoph's must-do list. This is an excerpt from Dream Racer, where Christophe Barrier-Vajou attempts a Dakar on his motorcycle for, I think, the fourth time. But it's not so much a movie about the Dakar, or about Christophe Barrier-Vajou, for that matter, or about his motorcycle. It's a movie about inspiration and about perseverance, about having a goal and stopping at nothing until you achieve it. racing on sand is. It's a fine balance. You make the slightest mistake and you could be out of the race, or worse. 
doing this day in, day out for 16 days. So what do you want in life? If I give you the stock answer of being happy, you know, it's not going to cut it. So probably a feeling of knowing you have known yourself, that you have explored yourself, uh, that you have seen everything that you wanted to see, that you have felt everything that you wanted to feel, you know, that you have felt your life uh, in a way. You know, it's not about having a car or a house, two, three, 20 children, this is not it. Family is right, but what is it that you have done in your life that make you say, yes, I'm happy of having had such a life? Dream Racer is a movie written and directed by Simon Lee and starring Christophe barrier vijou And it's about this French-Australian businessman, Christophe, who pushes himself beyond the standard boundaries of the adventurous while he tackles the most dangerous race in the world, the Dakar. He's doing it by himself as a privateer, which means he raises his own funds and he looks after himself completely in the race. But Christophe wallows in raising funds for his Dakar. He has no bike. He spends so much time trying to raise the capital necessary for it that he hardly has time to train for the event. I spoke with Christophe from his home in Nelson Bay, Australia. Christophe, how long have you been racing motorcycles? I started racing at the age of 15 um, in the Ivory Coast in West Africa. So it's been, uh, what, 30, 35 or, yeah, I cannot even count anymore. I don't want to, yeah, 30 plus years um, of racing so far. I was born in France, in the south of France, in, in Marseille. And, uh, but when I was eight and a half, my dad decided he had enough of French people because they complained too much that they were never happy. So he sold everything that we had in the apartment and, and flew around West Africa looking for a job. And uh, three months later, my mom, my sister and I arrived in Africa. And that was in 1979. So I grew up in the Ivory Coast in West Africa. Uh, did all my high school there. And... Um, and then uh, at the end of um, the high school years, uh, I stayed here, so wandering around what to, what to do, and uh, ended up um, moving from um, the Ivory Coast to San Diego, California, in the U.S. How did you get into motorcycle riding? Well, growing up in Africa, um, you know, the outdoors is, plays a, a major part of, of your life. And um, in um, when I was fourteen, um, I was in France. And uh, my dad called me just before I flew back to the Ivory Coast. He said, look, before you come back home, um, go to a motorcycle shop and buy yourself a helmet. And I made the connection very fast. He said, well, if you buy yourself a helmet, does that mean I have a motorcycle? And he said, yes. And uh, he had bought me a, a small 50cc Honda uh, motorcycle, and he got himself a, a Honda 125 XLS. And then we spent the next two, three months um, riding around together weekend in the bush. So that's how it started, um, spending two or three months riding uh, dirt bikes in, uh, on dirt roads uh, across the bush. The reason we're talking right now is because I've seen your movie, or at least the movie about you, called Dream Racer, which is about your 2010 uh, attempt on the Dakar, which you finished. The movie, uh, I mean, it, it has some amazing reviews in there. Uh, one of the, the quotes that I thought was, was great was, motivational film of the decade. Now, I'm not sure as people really look at a movie uh, or would think of a movie about the Dakar as being motivational, but yours was particularly motivational because it showed the way that you had to approach the Dakar, which was really raising money. That was a big part of what you do. And if, if I remember correctly, you did more of that, I think, than anything else. Was the 2010 attempt very different from your other three? The, you know, no, the preparation was pretty much the same because I've raced all three of them beforehand uh, as a privateer, raising my own um, money or actually, you know, buying everything myself. Um, but the 2010 uh, for me was I wanted to finish the Dakar on a good note. The year before I had broken my arm. And I just didn't want to stop racing the Dakar Rally on, on a negative note. So I really wanted to finish, you know, um, the race by crossing the finish line. And on top of that, because I had raced for so many years, um, I just wanted to give something back to uh, to the public that don't necessarily appreciate how much effort uh, it takes to to um, to participate in a race, let alone be the be the Dakar Rally. And um, and um, so I wanted to make a film, and I had wanted to make a film for quite a few years, but the and the funding was, uh, 
you know, the, the main issue trying to finance a film is not a cheap exercise either. And um, so when I got to uh, in connection with a friend of mine, Simon, that was a, a Natman, and I told him, look, um, you can do, you know, 95 minutes or 93 minutes of uh, 30 seconds ad and I'll be happy with that. And so I really had to push him really hard to um, to follow me and, and follow me through the preparation of the race because I knew deep in inside of me this was something that people could get a message out of uh, in terms of inspiration, in terms of motivation to achieve your own dream. In my case, it was uh, to raise a Dakar rally, but for you know somebody else, might be climbing a mountain, it might be starting a business, it might be anything. So I was sure deep inside that a film like this will inspire people. And um, by racing around the world for so many years, you know, you see all those kids uh, coming up to you and, and they look at you with those massive big eyes and they just, you can see what they're thinking. They, they just want to be you. And um, I always sign the autograph, dreams do come true. And, um, you know, as as a, something to give back to, to those kids or, or adults or, or people that had wished they could have done something earlier on in their life but never came around to do it. Um, making the film for me was um, was not about me. It was not about Simon or Jacob, uh, who is part of the film as well. It was really part of giving a message saying, look, you can take on anything that you really want to and you can make it happen. And this is one example of it. And this is how we, we turned this film into, a, you know, there was no script, there was no, you know, we just filmed all day long and whatever happened, happened. And the uh, the story turned out to be a fantastic story that uh, the film won many awards. I think we got uh, seven nominations. Uh, we won four awards in Los Angeles, in Milan and, and um, Barcelona as well. And um, and the reason is it appears to be a motorcycle film, but it's not. It's about uh, motivation, it's about inspiration, and it's pushing your own limits as well. And um, yeah, I couldn't have finished the Dakar rally on a much better note than that on a motorbike. Let's first look at the Dakar itself. Why do you do the Dakar, especially why have you done it four times? I had raced uh, motocross for many, many years. And um, in 2004, I was um, I had started my business three years before, my own consulting business. And um, I was looking for the next challenge. And I started missing... And the racing aspect, uh, not the racing to beat somebody else, but the racing in terms of preparation about, uh, you know, training hard. And it's about discipline. It's about, you know, exposing yourself or your own weaknesses to try to to improve yourself. And I started missing that a lot. And um, I said, well, I could go back and race motocross again or I could try something else. And um, and I said, why not the Dakar rally? And it was a very simple decision that took about five minutes to make. And um but then the next question was, bloody hell, what is it involved? What is involved in, into racing the Dakar Rally? So I wasn't really sure what I got myself into it, but all I knew was I was going to race the Dakar Rally. The details will come afterward. I like that because I think that is a common thread from what I saw with you throughout the film was that you tend to see what you want first, go for that and not worry about the details. I mean, you, you sort of have this thing of the rest will work it out, work its way out. I remember um, you you spent a good portion of your time or probably most of your time at the start of it trying to raise funds. Um, you should have gave up a lot of times there. I think, for, you know, by many people's um, opinion, they would look at it and say, okay, Chris, off it's time to you know throw in the towel you made a good run of it but you didn't and right in the 11th hour you managed to get the last bit of funding you needed to go it was yes, every uh, race like that uh pretty pretty close to yeah pretty close to and and it's not that i want to do it this way but it just turns out to be that way so um it's um you know when it's so easy to give up and and you listen to people saying oh they, you want to do this or you want to do that or you want to travel and and then in the same sentence there is a but but i cannot do it because i have a family but i cannot do it because i don't have the money but i cannot do it because i'm not fit enough and those are just excuses that people give themselves i think if you see yourself in a position of of accomplishing your your dream or whatever it is objective that you want to achieve the rest is just details and if you remove all the negativity that you can bring into your own mind saying 
I don't have the money or I'm not fit enough or anything or I will give up, then it's easy to give up. But then you have to live with it for the rest of your life as well. Um, in my mind, I said to myself, I don't care how long is that going to take to make the dream come true, but uh, I keep going at it until I get to it. And uh, it's, um, you know, I, I talk about dream racer, you know, quite a few in, in speeches and, and those sort of, um, you know, interviews. And and the common themes is, is really dream racer is about, obviously, dreams. You have a dream. You have something that you want to do. It is also about determination, you know, how far you're willing to push yourself to, to make the dream come true. And when everything fails, when people don't support you or when you run out of money or you get an injury or something goes wrong, then the real deal comes in. And this is what I call resilience. And resilience is, is facing the adversity, not only amongst yourself, you know, the things that you can experience yourself, but all the people around you that say, oh, look, why don't you give up or it's too hard or anything and turn that into a motivation and say, look, you can tell me how much you think is not going to happen or why I should give up. But the more you tell me, the more you know, stubborn I'm going to become. So, and I think resilience is, is a big thing. You know, when become, people find stuff that becomes too difficult to, uh, to achieve, uh, even though they are full of determination, they give up. And um, if you remove the time from it and, uh, and you keep going at it and uh, have strong resilience, then uh, there's no reason for it not to happen. When do you give up? Uh, that's a hard question to uh, to answer. Um, racing the Dakar Rally, I think um, you know the likes of uh, Simon Pavi and and many of other people that have raced this race come to the same conclusion. You enter the race, and you know that you might not come back because it's a deadly race. And if you make a single little mistake or if you're not prepared enough, you you know people die every year. So when do you give up um, knowing that you race a race like the Dakar Rally, knowing that you might die or might you get seriously injured and you don't give up getting into it? I'm not sure if the word giving up is, uh, I don't know if giving up actually registers with us. Um, uh, you, 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 saw, you want so much to achieve what you started. Um, that giving up is, is really if, if you cannot walk, if you cannot stand up anymore, if, if, if you cannot really move, then you have to give up. Um, but uh, as long as you have, uh, you know, one or the two legs and one arm working you, and you still can stand up, I think you, you keep on going. Well, you injured yourself on that Dakar run that's filmed for Dream Racer. And you wouldn't even go see the doctor because you didn't want to have anyone tell you that you had a serious injury. You were willing to push it that far. What goal were you were you looking to achieve? Was it finish? Was it ranking a, a certain spot? No, the first goal was not giving up. Um, you know, no matter what the injury, as long as I, I could stand up and walk, uh, I was fine. But very often you're put in a situation where uh, the organization and the doctors want to minimize the risk um, to yourself in the case of future injuries because you already have an existing injury. And uh, <clears throat> I knew that my injury with uh, with my back was you know, going to be uh, causing concern in case I fall off and I enjoy myself even more. And the same thing with the arm. So I, uh, I played that down both with, uh, with the doctors and also with myself, um, not to have this take over all my, uh, all my mind saying, look, I'm, I'm really hurt. I don't know. And complain and all that. And the more you complain, the more you hear yourself complain and the more you, <laughs> you feel bad. So I tried to ignore completely. And that's why you see me in the film, just uh, kind of joking and, and uh, ignoring the pain that way, uh, not to think about it. Are you generally a happy, easy-go-lucky person? Yes, yes, I'm very easygoing. Um, I don't, um, I really don't complain much. Um, the only uh, time I complain is when my dog is not uh, not good. So, but apart from that, uh, I'm pretty <laughs> easygoing. Yes. <laughs> Because in the film, I, I mean, you just you seem to just keep going with the same sort of smirk on your face, like, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it." Um, what there was there no moments, you know, behind the camera where the tears came? 
and tears now, but uh, I really started uh, having doubts when um, I couldn't get the motorcycle I needed to enter race, and I just didn't know how I was going to do it because the motorcycle I had was um, in Australia was uh, was not working, and but I could have fixed it, so that's not an issue. The problem was I didn't, I just didn't have enough money to to fly the motorcycle because it was too short to send it by ship. So uh, money-wise, there was no way I could fly the motorcycle across South America. And and then you are put in a position where you are dependent on on someone to uh, you know to help you out with the, with a bike um, to uh, to be able to get the starting line. So it's uh, yeah it's, it's hard yeah. But uh, going back to uh, going back to uh, being you know uh, happy and all that and I think that's part of the and the way I look at life is the more negativity the more bad thoughts uh, you bring into your your own language uh, the more you're gonna feel it. So um, if you're generally happy and, and you portray that happiness across people around you and and then you end up with a, with a happy environment. And like I say, you know, my dog is always happy, so there's no, <laughs> no reason why I shouldn't be happy like the dog, you know. <laughs> the Dakar is, is the most dangerous race in the world. I think most people would agree with that. And like you said yourself, people die every year on it. Um, you've done it four times. I, I believe one of these is a classic, isn't it? Did you do it in Africa? Yes, I did it twice in Africa, yeah. Right, so two of them in Africa, and then two of them in South America. Um, and and you, you keep going back. You just mentioned yourself about the, the fear that, uh, or at least the concern, or at least the recognition that it may be your last one. That doesn't limit you from from uh, your drive to go on this? I mean, it doesn't sort of say to you, okay, I've done enough of these, and I don't want to push my luck? Well, uh I've done enough of these on motorbikes um, because uh, my first Dakar was not successful. I nearly killed myself. Uh, so I had to go back again and finish what I started. That's the, the second Dakar in 2007. And then the first Dakar in South America, again, I couldn't finish because I broke my arm. So I had to finish what I started. So Dakar on a motorbike is, is over. I, I will probably not do it ever again but that doesn't mean that i'm not going to do the dakar with something else and um and the next challenge will be racing the dakar in a single seater buggy what i'm going to try to do is um race in a car with no co-pilot so a few people have done that before which is not easy because you have to navigate and and, and race at the same time um, but what I'm going to try to do is something that has never been tried before. I'm going to try to do the same thing as I did on the uh, on the film Dream Racer, is to perform my own mechanics every night. And no one, as far as I know, has ever tried to do this in a car. Wow, that uh, that sounds like a huge, a huge task. Um, when you're planning this and you're thinking of doing it with this buggy, for instance, are you looking for new things that haven't been done or do you just get that much of a thrill of running this race? No, just trying to do something that has never been done. Um, you know, I did the Dakar with the mechanic, and then I wanted to try uh, without without a mechanic, like the good old days. And um, I want to try, you know, racing the car with um, without a mechanic. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to jeopardize the uh, the whole race um, in case something bad happens overnight and and need help. So there will be a mechanic on stand, and hopefully I will never use him, uh, just in case I need a hand with something. So I'm not entering the race saying, look, there's no one and, and just because there's so much budget, there's so much money involved. You don't want to spend, you know, I spent the last five years saving every bit of money that I get uh, to be able to do this. Uh, so it's been a long process since 2010. Um, so it's not something that I just want to chuck away and, and not being prepared. So the car is being built a specific way to minimize the maintenance on it or to facilitate the maintenance. Um, it's, uh, it's built a certain way in terms of suspension travel and those sort of things to, again, minimize the, uh, the issues that we may have with the, uh, the CV axle, which is the, the main issue on two-wheel drives. And um, so we're putting a lot of thoughts into uh, building something that will allow me to, uh, to get to the end. It's not a, a small fit because uh, racing on the Dakar on a motorbike is, is difficult, especially when you do it from Australia, dealing with all the European dealerships and transportation and logistics and all that. Uh, but in a car, the car is being built in the US. I'm here in Australia. Some of the assistance uh, teams are in Europe. So it's, uh, it's a constant effort trying to, uh, to put all the bits of the puzzle together to make it happen. When we're talking about racing the Dakar, what kind of money are we looking at here for the movie Dream Racer? 
Yeah, for the uh, movie Dream Racer, it was about $120,000 um, to race um, with a new bike and um, and the mechanic and you know and and some assistance. Uh, obviously, I didn't have that, so I was um, I think I spent about um, a bit less than that um, just to uh, you know just to be part of the race. So it's it's a lot of money being involved, and you want to make sure that uh, you don't waste it on the first two or three days. So it's uh, it's a big effort. Yeah, it's a huge chunk of money. You race as a privateer, what they call a privateer. Can you describe that? Yes, a, a privateer is uh, is pretty much uh, you may have friends that give you a helmet or, or boots or clothes, but um, there is no financial sponsors, so there's no one uh, finance, financing your entry fees for the Dakar or financing you know ten, twenty, or thirty thousand dollars. So everything comes out of your own pocket. So you work, you make money, and then you spend it on on the Dakar rally. Uh, so as a privateer, you, you do everything yourself. You organize. You don't have um, you don't have huge um, team behind you. You don't have a, a masseur or masseurs or kiné or, or anyone to help you. You just um, decide to have a go at the race and make it happen. That's what a privateer is. The sponsors that you were after, though, for the, or during the movie Dream Racer, they were paying part of this fee, though. Uh, only I only had one financial sponsor, uh, that was Hyundai, that helped me right at the end uh, with a small uh, financial contribution. All the sponsorship was uh, was done in terms of product support, and that uh, included one industry for the uh, for the helmet, uh, Zaxpeed for the clothing, uh, and then Alpine Stars for the boots. Everything else came out of my pocket. That's a big chunk of money. That's uh, that it can, is. Yeah, it is. It, it's, it's no wonder you're not doing it every year. It's difficult to do it every year. So when I did, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008 was cancelled. Uh, 2009 and 2010 is every year has gone so fast. Trying to recover from the Dakar, refinancing the Dakar, reparting, taking part of the of the race again. You know, nearly four times in a row. And, uh, and and my first Dakar was uh, made me sick in the stomach because I did everything by the book and I prepared this re- I prepared really hard a brand new bike a mechanic that knew what they said they knew what they were they were doing and the whole team and everything was done by the book and um, and three days into the race I had this major crash because one of the trip master was not set up properly so he was giving me the wrong distances. And uh, nearly killed myself, and um, and the race ended three days into the race, so that's forty thousand dollars a day. And you come back and you train yourself for two years, and 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 three days later is over, and it's not a happy feeling. <laughs> what do you get from running the Dakar? Uh, you get to discover yourself. You you get to push your your own limits. You know, it's um, obviously it's uh, the longest and and most difficult race that exists at the moment. And to me, it's this uh, voyage of of self discovery. Is how far you can go. You know, physically, mentally, and also emotionally. Uh, and you know, when you race a race like the Dakar Rally, every day um, you go through two, three lifetime experiences. Whether it's the things that you see or the things that you experience, or positive and negative. And at the end of 14 or 15 days, you come back to real life, and real life becomes black and white. It's not exciting anymore. It's uh, it's, it's almost it almost becomes like an addiction. And you got to be careful with that, but uh, it's uh, it's hard. So you know, you do one Dakar, you want to do another one, and you want to do another one, and and you got to be careful to um, you know to do it properly every time. Otherwise, it's uh, it could be very dangerous. But to me, it's it's pretty much uh, self-discovery and and learning to explore your own weaknesses and, and address those uh, during the training, obviously, so uh, you can address them easily uh, during the race as well. Well, I just hope this quest for money doesn't take kibble out of the dog's bowl. <laughs> no, they, they've got their own <laughs> bowls, yeah. They're... Oh, what do you mean they? You, you've got more than one dog? Yes, yes. Now I've got, um, well, Bizu is uh, is the star of the film, I like to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, my dog, uh, Bizu, she became blind three years ago. Uh, she had uh, a genetic condition of the eyes and there was nothing that can be done. There's no operation, there's no treatment or anything. And so now we got a second dog called Chica, another Labrador, who is the guide for Bizu. So 
and that's Holly, the guy they hang around and uh, and she helps him she helps Bizo a lot to run the house and in the bush and pull her out of the the bush and anything but Bizo, i think it's uh is even more stubborn than me so she's uh <laughs> yeah chica doesn't have an easy task <laughs> <laughs> so when are you going back into the car with the buggy well, normally the plan was for this coming January, but uh, I'm not sure if, uh, if the car will be will be done on time. Uh, but the car is being built at the moment, so obviously financing everything, you can only go as fast as the money is there. But uh, it's uh, if it doesn't happen this coming January, it will be next year in 2017. In terms of Dream Racer, the, the, the main message about the film is not really a film about the Dakar Rally. It's, it's about pushing oneself. And what we are doing outside of that, you know, you can watch the movie, but we're also developing a brand around it to, again, hopefully help fund the next effort, which is developing a whole set of, um, of T-shirts and, and apparels for people to uh, people to wear. And, and the goal behind that, you know, when you look at different marketing companies or, or different large brands, they... Um, they go with the they go with the champion. They go with a world champ. They go with you know a surfer or a Formula One racer, and and then people tag to that. And what I'm trying to do is is the opposite. I believe there is a dream racer in all of us. And and when you watch Dream Racer, you, you know you, you got to look and ask yourself the question. You know what is it that you have done? What is it that you want to do? And hopefully that film gives you a little bit of uh, of a kick, saying, look, if this guy. Uh, raise a Dakar rally with just one month of physical preparation, so can I. And and not just to raise a Dakar, but to, to do anything that you want to do in life. And then once you be part of that philosophy, then you'll be proud of, you know, wearing some of those Dream Racer brand or putting a sticker somewhere because it means a lot more than than watching a film. That's, uh, yeah, that's the main key. Christoph, thank you very much for talking to us about this. And uh, I'm sure that everyone's going to rush out and see this film because it is a really, really good film. Thank you very much, Jim. Thanks very much for helping spreading the word and uh, and talk soon. I've been speaking with Christophe Barrier-Verjou and you can find out more about Christophe in the movie Dream Racer by dropping by our website and looking at the show notes. There's a link in there from our show notes on this episode. Or you can go by the Dream Racer website, which is dreamracer.tv. And if you decide to rent the movie or buy the movie, you can put in a promo code at the end of it for 10% off. Just put in ARR, which is, of course, an acronym for Adventure Rider Radio. And that way Christophe knows where it came from. And now we're going to hear from Shirley and Brian Ricks, who call themselves Aussies Overland on Facebook and their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Um, Shirley and Brian headed off from Australia. They went to Greece. Um, they were going to go through Eastern Europe, Scandinavia. Then they're going to go across Russia through the Stands, Mongolia, and Siberia. That was their plan when they were setting out. Last time we spoke with them, they were in Moscow. This time, they're in Kazakhstan. Now, when they were in Moscow, they were very upbeat and everything was sounding great. Now they're sounding like they're, well, they're feeling the heat, I gave them an early morning wake-up call in Kazakhstan to find out how it was going. Hello. Good morning. And and how's that for getting a phone call out of the blue? Oh, that's okay. We were just um, sort of sitting in, in the bed discussing whether we should get up so uh it's for okay so, so here's what i'm picturing you're in a um in a yurt no um we're actually in a town called semi which used to be called something else where they've held 500 nuclear tests and we've been told that they also have a very spectacular graveyard of Lenin lenin statues but it is just a bounce-off point for us. In a, in about uh, an hour, we'll hit the road and head to back into Russia. What? No sightseeing while you're there? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, hang on. So whereabouts exactly are you? Where is this town? It's called Semi S E M E Y in Kazakhstan, just near um, just near the Russian border. Uh, near a Russian town called Robotsk. Robotsk. And you sound great. You sound like you've been up for hours and you sound like you're all primed and ready. Yeah, look, it's it's a bit gruelling at the moment, Jim, because the weather is, it's just so hot and um, Kazakhstan roads are, are poor at the best. Funnily enough, other than the last 150 k's coming into this town where they used to have the nuclear tests. So that sort of says something, doesn't it? 
Yeah. So when you say you have nuclear tests, does that mean that there's radiation abound there? I certainly hope not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it sort of makes you think, doesn't it? Who would know, mate? We, uh, it's very desolate as you come in here. Um, it's you're on a steep, um, just straight out um, desert style country. Uh, and you come across these towns, but uh, infrastructure in this part of the world is really, really uh, pretty poor. Um, the roads are very, very challenging, and doing 600 kilometres on one of these roads is like doing a thousand plus kilometres anywhere else. So, how are you guys holding up at this point? Um, yeah, not bad, not bad. Um, the bike's been absolutely amazing, I've got to say. Uh, it's taken a hell of a pounding. Um, as you drive along the roads, you see broken down cars, uh, cars with their bonnets up, uh, people um, underneath cars trying to fix it, and they've, they've got roadside stops where they've actually got um, uh, ramps where you can pull your pull um, drive your car up on top of these ramps so you can look underneath to, to inspect things because suspensions take a hell of a pounding out here. But um, we're trucking along okay. We take our time. We make sure we're hydrated. We carry three litres of water with us every time we stop, about every two hours to make sure that we're okay. Even with that, you know, you get a little bit dizzy sometimes from um, not taking enough water. That's He's true. underplaying it, Jim. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just going to ask you, Shirley, uh, now what's your, your point of view? Uh, it's It's been, the last few days have been really tough, but we, um, we, had, um, we had a tough time in Tajikistan and... Um, we ended up having to turn back on the Pamir Highway. The the bike with us on it was just too big and too heavy for the the road through the bottom valley um, through Tajikistan. So since then, we've just been trying to head head north and get back into Russia. And uh, the weather has been debilitating. It's been high thirties all day, and it doesn't matter how early you start on the road. By nine o'clock, it's thirty five, thirty six degrees, and by two o'clock in the afternoon, it's it's hitting around forty every day, and the constant bumping on the roads and um, in Tajikistan, the roads were very broken up and lots of gravel. And uh, we um, we had, I think we'd spoken. Have we spoken to you since we did turn back on the Pamir? I'm not sure. I don't think so. No. Yeah, well, we had two offs in about an hour. Um, one very soft one into sand. The face, the face plant straight into sand. <laughs> Which, um, luckily, we were travelling with a young man who was very fit and strong and helped us push the bike out of about twelve inches of sand. The bike was actually standing independently in the sand with no one around it, and uh, and then we had an off on a, a a road with a gravel, very unstable gravel surface, and that was a little harder. And um, Brian had already sported a torn calf. Uh, calf muscle helping push a friend of ours out of um, a um, hotel car park up a flight of stairs with a sidecar and um, so he re-injured his leg so discretion was the better part of valour and we turned around and and uh, headed back. So how long do you have now to get back into Russia? What sort of distance are we talking in time? Oh, oh, we're only talking about 100 uh, kilometres to the Russian border. But um, I've got to say, the Pamir region, even though it was tough and hard um, and rugged, it really gives you an insight as to what life's like down there. You're right on the Afghan border, Jim, and um, the people there um, trade with the Afghan people all the time. But there is a strong army presence. We were pulled up all the time by the army. Um, there's been tribal and infighting down in that part of the world for some time. So even though we travelled down right down to the bottom part of that Pamir, uh, we didn't get up onto the, the top plateau. Um, we turned around and came back through the same area. It was uh, very, very interesting. And then crossing the borders, um, coming from the Tajikistan into um, Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan, was really interesting because these little enclaves where people claim it as other parts of another country. And you'll be riding along a road and all of a sudden there'll be an army um, roadblock. And we were turned around. We said, you can't go through here. This is now Uzbekistan. Well, it's not. You know, It's just a little um, enclave of about uh, 50 square kilometres, which they then claim. So there's all these sorts of little disputed territories. You've got to navigate your way around as you head through it. And the maps really don't mark it that well. 
So um, we'd broken English and sign language. We we'd eventually did make our way through and got to um, Kazakhstan. And when you're running into these roadblocks and things, do you feel threatened at all or are you just finding that you just have to turn around? Uh, it's just really frustrating yeah. because you know on the other side is a perfectly good road that will get you where you're going, but they won't let you through. They're very good at that crossed um, wrist action from deal or no deal on television. That's They just stand <laughs> there and cross their wrists and we're not going through. So you just have to turn around and have another look at the map and work another work another way through. They're quite friendly about it, but there's no c- convincing them to let you pass. And then what kind of a detour are you looking at? Oh, we, we had to detour back about 50 or 60 kilometres, um, then try and work out another way. And uh, eventually we did that by really following a border fence uh, and uh, kept going that way. But um, eventually you, you, you make your way through. But when it's hot and debilitating, you know, you do get a little bit short with each other sometimes, but that's part of the travel, Jim. You know, it's, uh, it's not all beer and Skittles sometimes. <laughs> but then... When you, you cross um, wonderful mountain ranges and uh, see great vistas, it's all worth it. And you're right, we, we have seen um, yurts on the side of the road, um, horses um, roaming free and feeding on the side of the road with the little foals. Really is quite spectacular. And you guys have been doing a, a lot of posting on Facebook, so you've been finding internet connections here and there. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, internet um Internet is actually pretty much everywhere. We've stayed in guest houses that um, were very, very rudimentary, yet they did have Wi-Fi. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, it's the new world. And, and free, Jim. In some, some Western countries, you have to pay for internet. Here, everywhere, it's free. And is it all open or do they have codes on it? Some have codes. Yeah. Some Sometimes it's open. It, it varies. And um, in Uzbekistan, it's probably the slowest Wi-Fi but you can still get on and post on Facebook and check, sometimes check emails, not always. But um, as we're moving back into Russia, it's getting better and better. And where does the route take you now? As you go back into Russia, where do you end up? We're staying um, for three or four days in a town called Banal, B-A-R-N-A-U-L, where our friends Ken and Carol Duval arrived yesterday. And uh, we've both got uh, apartments in the same block and we're going to spend some time chilling out with our Aussie buddies. Nice. Yeah, it will be really nice. Um, we've, we've met some fabulous people along the way and we've travelled with some great people and spent time chatting with good people at guest houses and hotels and petrol stations. But uh, it'll be nice to catch up with our Aussie buddies who we haven't seen since Alaska in 2012. Oh, wow, that's so nice. A little reunion there. It'll be a big reunion. They've already got supplies in. They, <laughs> they sent a message last night asking red, white or beer or all three. So, <laughs> And, of course, you said all three. I actually said I would sell my soul for a glass of decent white wine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, after that, Jim, we, we, uh, we're going to start uh, trekking um, east again. And uh, if time permits, we'll drop down into Mongolia. If not, if the weather's starting to close in, we'll just keep heading directly towards Vladivostok. Um, the, the, the weather is going to close in soon, so uh, we've got to just keep an eye on that now. We've been told, Jim, that um, Vladivostok and that part of Russia can be good up until the middle or late September, but it can also close in earlier than that. And we've worked out that from um, where we'll be tonight to Vladivostok is something like 6,500 kilometres. And um, it is now the 20th of August. So we may have left our run a bit late to give ourselves time to go down into Mongolia. What, what's the turnaround point for you? What's, what's going to tell you it's time to, to switch around and head back? Oh, we'll just keep going to Vladivostok. Um, but we want to get there before it starts to snow. And gets too icy and, you know, well, you know where you live, you riding on ice and is all a bit you, tricky, so. You guys might be used to it, but we're not. <laughs> tricky is a bit of an understatement for a motorcycle on ice. I mean, if you've got studded tires, that's a different story. But <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's yeah. so true. What I you need is one of those set of chains that I've seen. I think uh, Wonderleach has them. Um, they have the, the set of chains that would fit your bike. Oh, you beauty. What do you think, Shirley? I just think that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, you guys take care. Enjoy your day. Any um, any last words? Uh, <laughs> life's a big adventure. Get out and enjoy it. It's fun. Well said. <laughs> okay, thanks, guys. Take care and uh, and get in touch whenever you can. Will do, Jim. Cheers. Bye. That's Shirley and Brian Ricks, and you can find out more about their adventures by checking them out on Facebook. I think it's probably the most active place for them, or you can look at their website, which is aussiesoverland.com.au. Well, now we've got a Moto Mogul for you this week. Remember, Moto Moguls are our feature for people that we feel have made a significant contribution to the motorcycle industry and affect the way that we deal with motorcycles or the industry now. And this week, we're featuring no less than the Johnsons, Grant and Susan Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. I'm Grant Johnson. I'm Susan Johnson. And we run Horizons Unlimited. And what we do is inspire people to go one step farther, ride their bikes a little farther than they did before, and maybe even do something exciting like ride around the world. Now, clearly, Grant and Susan, you guys have changed a lot of people's lives. And you you really are the hub of the international or the traveling motorcycle community and even um, others that are into to four-wheel travel and uh, and bicycle travel, for that matter. It seems like such an odd model that you're in, yet it's incredibly successful. How do you get into a business like this? You fall into it. <laughs> Didn't start out as a business at all. Started out as um, our trip story from our own round the world trip from 1987 to 1998. And then we got started basically came back we posted up that on what was then the the very early stages of the internet it's CompuServe um, Grant started getting people asking questions and asking questions how did you do this and what about that and what border how did you get through this border and so he started a bulletin board so that other people could answer questions and that's where it all began and it was never intended to be a business until it became a consuming activity for both of us um, over the well, it's been a consuming activity for Grant since 1997. Well, 98. The website 98. went live Christmas 97 in Ushuaia, Argentina, while we waited for the boat to go to Antarctica. And by the time we got back, there was all kinds of questions. And the whole purpose of the website has been to help travelers help each other and share information. So just starting out as a hobby, let's look at your background. Um, I know you have different backgrounds. Um, Grant, you were in motorcycle, and I, I believe, Susan, you're an accountant? Um, my background is accounting originally, and then um, consulting on technology and, and business use of technology. So I was actually a consultant for 25 years. And, um, and then since I've been full-time with Horizons Unlimited, it's been everything from video editing to fulfillment to um, all the financial stuff, um, just whatever has to be done. And I started out as a motorcycle mechanic at about 18, working part-time in a motorcycle shop. And by the time I was 21, I owned a motorcycle shop and went from there to, I was racing at the same time, motocross, cross-country, road racing, the whole thing. Um, from there, I went on to run some sporting goods stores, which has been useful for knowledge of camping equipment, and ski instructor, sailing, a bunch of stuff. And then to photography along the way, I was a professional photographer for a few years, and then started running a website with a stop along the way in technology, teaching uh, people in Singapore how to use high-end computer systems. Uh, Grant it would be considered the chief technology officer as well as the CEO of Horizons Unlimited and I guess you could call me the chief financial officer and um, the director of fulfillment and operations. Uh, the whole site, everything, it's just the two of us. Um, we don't have a staff. We have some occasional part-time help with accounting and um, we have a lot of volunteers all over the world that help to run the events organize the events and um, and also moderate the bulletin board and the Facebook group. But it's otherwise just us. And sometimes people think it's some big multinational corporation. And 
but it's not. Yeah, I remember we were at an event in the UK and somebody asked us, just, we were sitting down in a restaurant, somebody said, what do they pay you to come? What do you mean? What do they, what do, who's, who's they pay us to come here? Um, yeah, you know, like Horizons Unlimited. Uh, we are Horizons Unlimited. <laughs> we're it. Oh, <laughs> that's kind of the penny dropped. <laughs> we are it. Um, and without the volunteers, which have done amazing amounts of work and some wonderful stuff and helped people connect everywhere, uh, we couldn't do a tenth of what we do. It's all down to the volunteers. They've been fantastic. Was there a turning point? Because you, you'd mentioned that it's, it's really started out just as a hobby, just as you trying to help other travelers, which really is kind of ironic because that's exactly what you're still doing now, even though it's a business. Was there a turning point there? Was there, was there a, a spot that you could put your finger on where you said, oh yeah, when this happened, that's when we knew this had to, be, uh, had to become a full-time gig? It was actually when we moved, we finished our travels in, in 98 and we actually moved to England and I got a job full time and Grant had some leisure time and so that's when the hub started and the uh, hosting other travelers stories and more content itself on the site and the meeting organizing. But um, it wasn't actually something that we considered a business for the first number of years. It was kind of like, well, it, it's a hobby, but it has to pay its way. And um, that was it, you know, the hosting costs for the website and, and the costs of events and things. Uh, then somewhere in the mid-2000s, mid uh, it became obvious that it needed to do more than just pay its way <laughs> and pay for the hosting costs. And uh, I was full-time. Grant was full-time. I had been for several years at that point. So it, it had to pay enough to at least pay my wages, even at a subsistence level would have been nice. And then in 2009, I had been, uh, I was actually working for Microsoft in their consulting practice in the UK, and the recession kind of bit, and I got laid off, and I saw at that point a need to get full-time into basically hitting videos out the door that we had committed to producing this uh, DVD series. So I was full-time into Horizons from then. So what exactly does, does Horizons Unlimited make up now? Uh, or should I say, what, what is the breakdown on it? So there's the website, but then you also do the events. There's three parts to it. Um, there is the website, um, which includes the bulletin board, which includes other information content and hundreds of people's stories, hundreds of travelers' stories. Um, that's all on the one, you know, under the one site. Um, we, ran, we created a DVD series um, because we got really ambitious a few years ago, decided we'd interview literally 150 travelers about every possible thing that they could you know, think about in terms of their trips, and then edited that down over almost two years with a professional editor to come up with a, um, a DVD series, which we sell, and which is on Amazon and has amazing content. Uh, and then the event started out with just one back in 2001 in the UK, and this year there'll be 20 of them in 10 countries. Next year there'll be about 24, 25. Yeah. That's incredible. And, that, and that's where you're talking about with volunteers. The volunteers help you put these shows on? Yes. Well, I, wouldn't, I would never call them a show. It's a traveler's meeting. Travelers getting together and sharing stories and sharing, sharing information. information, spreading uh, inspiration to get out and go. We have lots of new people coming to the events. They're kind of wondering what it's all about. And, well, I'm thinking of maybe going traveling to, to the next country or something, and they come to the meeting, and they get hugely inspired by the amazing stories that all these ordinary people that have done amazing stuff, tell them, and get them going, and they learn how to, how to get going, what they need to know. They learn all kinds of information as well as the inspiration. So if it's just the two of you, how do you guys manage to juggle all of this? Um, we drop well. a few balls on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> we used to have a, a, a kind of quiet part of the year, which was when the events weren't happening from about, I don't know, October until April. And now we've got events in October and November and April. So our quiet part of the year has shrunk drastically. And, and that becomes the time when we have to do website stuff. So we've got major website upgrades happening this winter uh, because our software that we're running on has to be replaced. So that will be our winter gone. 
Um, you forgot we've actually got a meeting in December in Argentina and one in January in Brazil. Not that we're going to go to them, but, going to those. but we have to do the, the remote yeah. um, organizing of the meetings. So our own travel schedule runs from, well, this year we started in February in India and, and we'll finish in November in South Africa. Um, and we're, we're thinking we might try and scale the travel back a little bit next year. Well, we need to. It's really, it's really quite tiring. The advantage of it being just the two of us is that if we see that things aren't working quite right or we have an idea, we change on the spot. It's not like a big corporation where it's really hard to change direction. We don't like doing that. We don't do that. We get a better idea. That's what we do. We're also very big on uh, people coming up with ideas and suggestions. Uh, we listen to all the feedback and anybody has a better idea. Great. Let's go for it. What do you feel is the secret sauce for Horizons Unlimited? I mean, what is it about it that makes it work? I think, I think the biggest thing that makes it work is that it's just all the volunteers and the ordinary people coming to an event and saying, yeah, I did that and it wasn't hard and inspiring everybody else. And those connections, the people themselves, is the important part. Without that, there's nothing. What we actually create, I suppose, is the environment and the, and the ability for people to, to get this information and to connect with other people. That's why our, our kind of tagline is inspire, inform, and connect. Uh, it's those three bits that especially come together in uh, events, in the travelers' meetings, because people are inspired, as Grant said, by other people who have done things that are just seem like just ordinary people. They're not like superheroes. They're not rock stars. They're not celebrities in any way. They're just ordinary people. And then they get information from those events that, that helps them to plan their own trips. And then they make these wonderful connections. Um, and that lasts for, for a long, long time, those connections. Yeah, we hear so many stories about people meeting somebody on their travels and they become great friends and they connect and meet at other parts around the world and go to each other's houses and halfway around the world and meet and maybe go for a ride. The, uh, the connections that people make are just amazing. And I think that the, the, the really global nature of obviously the internet has, has provided the kind of underpinnings, but the really global nature of the website and the bulletin board and the events has, has really, for us it's quite important that if we had a mission it would be almost like um, inspiring people to get out not just outside their comfort zone, but to go and you know meet other people in other countries and and connect with people of other cultures and you know learn other languages and and really make it clear that the world isn't a scary place like the media would have you believe that it's not safe to leave your house, uh, much less your country. But the fact is that people are people everywhere in the world, and the more of those connections that we can make through the through the community, the global community, the more understanding people have and the better it is for everyone. Where do you guys see Horizons Unlimited uh, going in five years, ten years down the road? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Bigger and better? That's too easy. Uh, it's, it's just growth, and we'll have more events in more countries, lots more happening, more people involved. Um, we could easily see 30 or 40 events in, in, in any one year. There's just so much demand. I just got an email this morning from somebody in Bangalore, India. It says, I want to do a meeting. What do I need to know? Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> Let's yeah. talk. Yeah, we could easily double the number of events, but we have to. One of the things we're working on is, uh, if you will, some of the, the logistics and the documentation so that we can more readily have people pick something up and go, oh, okay, this is what I have to do, as opposed to us having to uh, verbally explain to people on every topic. Um, so an organizer's manual, for example, for the various types of events that we're doing. Well, we've already got that. Yeah, but you know that, that's an example of something that allows us to expand the number of events, uh, knowing that we can't get to every one of them, but it's important that there be certain characteristics that make a Horizons event unique. It's not a motorcycle rally. Uh, it's not a you know beer bash. Uh, it, it's more like a convention for motorcycle and overland travelers, and and as I said, you know, inspiring, informing, and connecting being the kind of key concepts. 
you just mentioned about a, a manual for setting it up. You actually have your your events set up so that if someone is in an area where there isn't an event going on, they can just contact you and say, I want to set up an event, and you can help them orchestrate the whole thing. Oh, yes. We have all of it well and truly figured out. We're somewhere around uh, almost 200 events that we've run so far, if not more. That was my last count a while ago. And we've pretty much got it figured out what we want and what seems to work for our people as opposed to your average motorcycle rally. It's quite different, as Susan was saying. So we've got the manual worked out, what we're trying to do, the, the feeling we're trying to create, and it seems to be working pretty well. And, yeah, and, and every event virtually in the world that we do run has started out with somebody putting their hand up and saying, I'd like to do an event in my country uh, or my state or whatever, and, and us working with them to make it happen. Um, so uh, actually, it was just, just a good story. We, have a, um, we had an event in Colorado a few weeks ago, and um, three guys rode up from Chihuahua in Mexico just for the event, just rode up straight 17 hours, kind of nonstop, came to the event, rode back home to Mexico, and uh, one of them is very keen to do an event in Mexico next year. So that's how they spread. And he's, he's what? That's, well, what's his position? He's in, he's in the government of Chihuahua. So uh, you know, he's a good, in a good location and a good position to help. But, but that's literally how it happens. People come to an event, they kind of go, wow, this is fantastic. And I've met these people who are my tribe is the phrase that people often use. Um, and they want to make it happen in their own location as well. Well, Grant and Susan, you're certainly doing a great thing for a lot of people. Um, before I let you guys go, Susan, I, Grant and I have talked about this before, but I wanted to get your definition of adventure and is time and adversity required for it? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't have a, one that I've coined, but one that I like that I've adopted is that adventure begins at the end of your comfort zone. We've certainly seen that, experienced that in all the locations in the world. For example, if you're in the UK, that might be going to France. That's your big adventure because it's a different country, it's a different language. Um, in the US, it might be going to Mexico. It's basically going out of your comfort zone. And, and for me, it isn't about riding off-road. Uh, it's more about exposing yourself to new experiences that will challenge your preconceptions. Grant and Susan Johnson are from Horizons Unlimited, and they are our moto moguls for the week. See Horizons Unlimited at www.horizonsunlimited.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. The Good Adventure Company is a motorcycle outfitter that donates its profits to sustainable charities. They specialize in soft luggage and only sell products they've tested and believe in. And now they're offering guided motorcycle tours. Visit them at www.good-adv.com. That's www.good-adv.com.
Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. And remember, when you drop by one of our advertisers or show partners, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio so they know that it's working for them. Drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. You can send us your comments and show suggestions by clicking on the contact button. You can check the show notes for this episode, and all of our episodes are there for you to download for free. Adventure Rider Radio is made possible through Canoe West Media, and special thanks to co-producer Elizabeth Martin. I want to give a shout out to all of you who have sent in a comment or show suggestion for us so far because we've had a lot of feedback, a lot of great information coming in. So keep it up. We really appreciate it. And now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. No excuses now. Ride safe. Hi, I'm Lawrence Hacking, and uh, you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.